Hey, how's it going? You know, I was watching. Hi. Hey, Billy. So I was watching your film, and what I lo really loved about it is that the story is amazing, but you think about every frame as if it's almost like a still photograph. And what I really loved about it is, as the camera stays still often in your films, you let people just move through it as if it's this, this moving still frame. Uh, um, did I, am I saying that right? How's that? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, you know, my, um, I, so I have a background as, uh, apart from being a filmmaker, I'm a multidisciplinary artist and my background is in paintings. And also I've worked as a production designer on film sets as well. And um, my film, when I think of my film, every shot is sort of like a painting or a tableau that is created in which um, the performance happened like a theater piece if you will so um, it's deliberate on my part and also I'm thinking of the work in terms of it's an installation it's also a, a, a experimental film and it's also sort of a hybrid film that is exploring uh, space as well uh, as well as the relationship with the actor and the relationship with the actor with a space so sometimes the idea of just keeping a still camera and having the actors perform within the space gives them more leverage in which to play and to do their thing which is kind of um how i imagine you know um this relationship the symbiosis for me between the actor the space and my own relationship with the actor as a director is play and i want them to have a, a space in which they can play and have enough imagination to be themselves do you see it as a still photograph i mean it just seems like when you look at your films you just see all these series of still photographs in there and then all of a sudden people will move yeah, it is um, a still photograph, but it's at once a moving image because some of these images becomes a still that is developed, that becomes an HD um, print uh, that's become part of the body of work. So everything is thought out in terms of like the different uh, medium in which I'm um, exploring in the work, because I know that um, eventually I might pull a scene from this film and just blow it up as a steel that becomes part of this body of work. Well, well, well I think I'm this is a really good place for us to introduce this. We're speaking right now to Billy Gerard Frank, multidisciplinary artist. Um, this is Mad Creative with Ed Letterman and Layden Lewis, where we focus on um, creative processes by different artists and makers and creatives. And um, we're speaking again to Billy Gerard, uh, Gerard Frank, who happens to be a personal friend of mine, and I'm really excited that he's on. And he is, um, you know, besides um, being a, fil a filmmaker and a director, um, his work does embody that of painting and photography. And so therefore we definitely see all of these um, kind of attributes in his work. So Billy, we're, we're really, really, really pleased to have you today. I'm very excited to be here as well. Thank you for inviting me and um, your podcasts and your platform seems really amazing. And I'm really excited that you, um, an honor that you invited me to have a conversation with you both. And Layden, I know you personal as well um, over many years and you've always been um, a creator that I think is a mad creator that I was inspired. What is a mad creator? If I can interrupt you, what is a mad creator? I think when I think of a mad creator, I think of somebody who uh, is a disruptor in that sense that 
don't have any uh, boundaries in terms of institutional boundaries with their creativity and their, their creativity is not mortgaged by cooperation. Okay. And it's not mortgaged by um, what the marketplace demands of them. And it's someone who's always, you're never quite sure what you're going to, what to expect to get from a Laden Lewis design or a piece of furniture or a specific curve or, you know, or, 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 or that is that true? Is that true? Sorry to cut you off. Is that true for, you know, Ed, you step in any moment. Is that true for yourself? Do you, do you find that you're, you did, you basically described a kind of an outlier and a kind of a feeling in a sense, because I think you've sensed being on the outside in order for you to, to always not be contained within that boundary. Absolutely, absolutely. I do think um, I would want to start with the place in which I came from. You know, I grew up in a small island called Pitty Martinique, which is part of the uh, Grenada, Grenadines, the sister isle of Grenada. And it's part of that whole archipelago of islands, uh, St. Vincent, Mustique, and there's Grenadines. And uh, my dad was a, a boat builder and a fisherman and uh, someone who was built homes and also um, an incredible captain and major oil tankers in the Middle East and all those places. And the, the, the home in which I grew up um, allow me the space in which to have creative freedom. They never called themselves artists in that sense. He never thought of himself as an artist because it was just um, survival of the fetus, if you will, uh, on a space that, you know, country band and all kinds of stuff was part of how one made a living. So when I think of my own practice as an artist, I kind of see myself as an autodidact. And a, a lot of what I do is a, a means of, of survival, but also um, a way of finding other ways of having creative expression. Because I went to art school for many years uh, in the UK as well in the United States, but I've always felt the medium of art in terms of painting was limited because I started out as someone who wanted to be a writer and then moved into painting and then moved into filmmaking and production design. So all of these mediums have helped me just to express emotions and feelings that I had inside me that was restricted in terms of one medium. So I, I needed several mediums in which to express my emotions and my feelings and what I was processing and in order to have a, my own catharsis around my own personal life. So that journey of coming to the, from that place, I think, played a very important role in how I see the world today and how I operate as a creator in that space. I'm trying to navigate as a multidisciplinary artist or whatever terminology. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's interesting that you you sometimes talk about being a creator and sometimes being an artist. Mm -hmm. And you talked about your dad being a creator, but not an artist. You, do you want to talk about that a little, the difference, how you see I think um, when I, they're kind of the same in a way. I guess my dad was definitely an artist. He did not call himself an artist, but he was an artist. He didn't. He didn't put because I think when you be, when we begin to put that um, the, the designation labels onto Des yeah. things, there's a specific requirement. There's a specific specific kind of thinking, a specific kind of narcissism that is wrapped up within that terminology, specifically in the West. I mean, Africans are incredible artists. They make potteries, they make stuff. Since the beginning of time, people were artists and making stuff, but that label was never attached to it. 
and we didn't have institution in which they had to go and learn for many years and get an MFA and being an artist. But you know what I'm trying to say here, I guess there were artists, but the, this label was not attached to it. Therefore they had a creative freedom in which to navigate the space to make work that was not necessarily for the marketplace. Well, that, well, I mean, you said it. I think, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it quite the way you just said it, survival. Yeah. Like survival. we make, we, we're making what we might consider to be an artisanal thing, a pottery, Absolutely. ceramic, yeah. a boat basin, and, I mean, a, a boat hull. Yeah. And, and things that we use, you yes. know, and I think what I think, and I mean, Ed, I don't know what you think, but I think that people in the West think about art as something that has no use. Mm -hmm. It is just there for complete, you know what I mean? For yeah. like almost, it's not, it's not to be used. Mm -hmm. We don't think about a, a, a spoon as a piece of art. It might be beautiful, but it's yes. not a piece of art. And this goes back to many ancient cultures. Think of the Japanese culture in terms of the pottery. The pottery had a function. Every single thing that was made by someone had a function. My dad needed to build a boat. It had a function. The function of the boat was to go out, to fish, or to sail, or to whatever. Nevertheless, I think it's the, 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 the sense of beauty and aesthetic is what they brought to the work and perfectionism because my dad would not have built a boat that was you know um a rough looking boat or a boat there's a terminology <laughs> in the caribbean sometimes called caliwampus and Kali my dad caliwampus what is caliwampus no how it's spelled caliwampus okay I have no idea how it's spelled. Oh, but, you know. I don't think anybody knows how it's spelled. I don't think anyone about it. Maybe on my small island where I grew up is the only place. My dad would look at someone's artwork or, or, or their boat or whatever. And he said, oh, that boat is a real Cali Wampus, you know. Yeah. What he meant by that is the boat had no kind of aesthetic or there was, there wasn't enough thought interesting to make in the boat you know what i mean because i remember when he was making his boat there was a certain amount of craftsmanship that had to go into the boat like how a piece of wood was spliced the usage of you know the, how the sail was sewn um there was a specific thought that went into it even though he never called himself an artist but this idea of beauty yes the search for the beauty within the, yeah, the finality of the work had to be beautiful yeah. So when you encounter the boat, it's like, oh my God, this boat is so beautiful. Hence the reason his boat went on to win many regattas in the Caribbean and it was sought after. <clears throat> wow. He applied a specific kind of rigor to his work. Um, I think perhaps where I get my own uh, um, sense of aesthetic form in my own practice, maybe it came from that because I have a specific rigor around my visual representation, how I see a frame, how the, how the, in terms of sound, music, costumes, all of that is very important for me. When, when did you start thinking about being a, an artist? Was it really young? Like, what was that moment? Yeah. Um, as a young boy and, and Pity Martinique, I was writing articles for newspaper about the local culture. Um, again, never called myself an artist. I was more thinking in terms of writing. I was exposed to certain kind of writers um, like Jean Rice, who was from Dominica, who lived in 
at the UK, I really loved her work. And she was sort of someone who had created a kind of exile around herself, self-imposed exile. I was exposed to writing, not necessarily to painting. And it wasn't, and even when I went to the UK, my idea was that I wanted to be a writer. It wasn't until I went to the UK that I was exposed to this idea that I could be an artist and I want to be an artist. Though I always drew, I always do things as part of uh, my daily existence in the Caribbean, but it was never uh, with this label of why'd you, why why'd you, why'd you leave the Caribbean? Uh, there was a number of things. Um, uh, first of all, the island I was living on had no um, colleges or okay. um, opportunities for further education. And also, um, leaving the Caribbean was a very, as a natural path, the natural process of people like myself, the post-colonial generation, uh, for the education in the UK or the USA was part of the trajectory because uh, there's no real universities or colleges to study specifically in the arts at the time when I was living in, um, in, Grenada, the Caribbean, so in Grenada. It was important uh, to leave and this was something that happened going back to the 1950s and 60s with a lot of Caribbean uh, people who wanted to be writers or artists leaving, uh, you know, all the writers like Stuart Hall and, um, you know, V.S. Naipaul, all the many, George Laman, the many writers who went to the UK to become writers. Hey, Billy, so what is the process? Like you're, like you're telling us your history and, you know, when you start writing, what does that process actually start? Even as a young kid, what does that process look like? Do you just sort of sit down with a piece of paper? Do you just have an inspiration? No, um, I'm not that kind of... Uh, first of all, I keep an active journal. <laughs> Journaling is a, is a daily... It's a part of my daily um, sort of routine. And in the process of keeping my journal, um, ideas and thoughts come to me. I may not necessarily jump on the idea at the time when it came to me, but later it's there, it's fermenting. Um, and usually when I think of uh, work that I'm doing, I always think of it in terms of like, oh, this is going to be a body of work, or this is going to be a film, or I'm reading a book. And there's a line <clears throat> that appeals to me, a certain smell, a certain character, a certain situation that inspire me and, you know, to, ex unwanted to and the desire to expand in that is I think how my process sort of work, for instance, boat project um, that I just completed, second eulogy, Man the Gap, that body of work was specifically inspired by family mementos. My dad had passed away. There was estrangement between me and my dad. And I went back to visit and found a suitcase containing letters that was exchanged between us over the years, um, maps, letters exchanged between him and his own dad that, was, that he was um, estranged from. And that kind of created that body of work, I would say inspiration. But that took some time for me to process. And, uh, you know, because it's a script, I had to, and also paintings and collage and many other things. Um, the process usually is 
the, the writing of the script, the writing of the film, and um, well, well, it, that, it, the ideas begin to permeate. It, it, it sounds like total chaos. It actually <laughs> sounds like complete fucking chaos in a lot of ways, um, which is kind of beautiful because I think um, Ed asked you a question as though there was, as though, um, and I was, I was waiting for, you know, uh, you know, kind of gripped with like a, like a, um, um, like a, not a linear, but a kind of a, a form, not a formula either. I don't think he was asking yeah. that, but so much of this multidisciplinary, I think is, you know, I actually don't buy that you're a multidisciplinary. I think you're always telling a story in just in different mediums. Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. I, and, and is that multidisciplinary? I don't know. For me, it's yeah. just like, you're an artist and today I'm going to pick up film and I'm going to use that and I'm going to pick up writing. Right, right. Or, I mean, you do those beautiful resin pieces and stuff, but, um, but you know, this, yeah. uh, this whole term of multidisciplinary, where did that come from as well? Isn't that a new terminology that came out of institutions? And Yeah, uh, well, they, well, they, well they, we're going to, I'm going to try to guide us back to where, we, what our podcast, what we really, our messaging is about, which is like, if there was elves in a, in a, in a cave that you use or, <laughs> Or is there a soup? Is there a recipe? Is there a is there a cauldron? Is there an oven? What do you think? Where do you go? Okay, fine. You you we know that you is total chaos, and then you decide <laughs> on an idea. That's great. But yeah. when when you start, like you know, I feel like sometimes you talked about a lot of things that feel a little ancient, and you talked about the West. Some of it feels a little spiritual, and we can't go down that path because that'll we'll get, we'll get we'll have you back on the show about that. But the it feels like you go to this well of a kind of a potency and energy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you want to talk about that because I think it's a well of of energy. Yeah, it is definitely a well of energy, but it's a space. Uh, uh, it's creative chaos that is. To, from the outside may feel chaotic to someone else. It's like, oh my God, how are you going to work and do all this various medium? And I always get that from my producers. Like, when are you going <laughs> to do this work? It's like, this is madness. When are you going to do this work? Why are you thinking of doing this? This is madness. <laughs> you know, but for me, it is not madness. It's just a, an emotion or an idea that I need to express. Right. And my mind works like that when I'm in the, pro in the creative process. There is multiple things that's happening, specifically my last film. I was doing the production design on the film. I was, you know, wrote and directed the piece. I was making sculpture. I was thinking of other things, elements that is attached to the work in terms of painting and ideas. But my mind is not in, in my, because I do, I've had a, a Buddhist meditation practice for many years. In out of that, I think that has given me a space in which to have a, a kind of creative liberty or, or, or crazy mind, if you will. I think it was Trumper Rinpoche who made a reference to um, the spiritual practices that of this crazy mind that you know you have an energy to do something and you just take the action and you do it. And that's very much how my process work. Um, there's a lot of, you know, writing and text and material and books and reading and you know, um, ideas that is kind of always, you know, um, sort of populating in my mind of how this is going to come out. But usually the end point of that um, 
there is always a, a roadmap, there is always a plan, there is always a script, there is always, you know, a detail, um, a, de a detail, a, a graphic of what I'm doing, whether that is a sculpture, for instance, the sculpture that was in the uh, Biennale, um, that was already mapped out in terms of what I want to do, what it's going to be. And uh, when I went to make the work, it was in my mind finished. So right. I think um, I so don't know when, if there's a recipe. Take, oh, sorry. I don't know if there's a recipe that suits. Um, that it's. I don't think there's a singular recipe for me. For me, it's like there's multiple things happening that you know is influencing the work or the ideas that is uh, flowing. So with absence of love, like I, I watched that the other day, and. Does that start out as an idea that's in a journal or is it say, oh, I have this idea for a film? Mm -hmm. That actually, as I mentioned, it started out of this uh, reading the letters that was between me and my dad and the letters between him and his own dad and looking at the images. Already I knew that was a film. Um, that's definitely lends itself as a film, but it also lends itself as a, a painting, canvas, collage, the, the, the suitcase and all the letters become an extension of an installation. I knew that I, I, had, I had stepped into something powerful here that was uh, the making of a, a rich film or a rich body of work because it was very close to my heart and it was very personal and it's, you know, emotions and feelings I needed to process. And it was an extension of early processing and journaling that had already begun. So that process is much easier. And I wrote that script literally in one night. Wow. Oh, oh, and what's amazing, and you talk about the chaos of it all, and it seems like the chaos is totally outside the frame. Yeah. <laughs> that film is so beautifully shot and so like every frame looks just beautiful. Like it's so yeah. well thought out. And even the process of shooting the film, even it was a, a lot of it was sort of chaotic as well because it was shot in five days. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm also, I produce my work as well. So, I'm raising money, I'm constantly, um, so there's this multiple hearts that I'm wearing in the process of making this kind of, well, the last body of work, um, Palimpsets uh, that's at the Biennale right now, I had to raise money in the midst of COVID and go to Grenada and shoot a film that was set in 18th century England. So there was this total chaos constantly around me, but deep inside me, there's a sense of calmness in the process of knowing what the end result is, even though there's multiple people and places I'm trying to navigate, but there's a center that knows what the end result is. And I think that's very much the process of directing um, for a director. Um, when they're working, there's so many areas of uh, you have to think about and navigate. Uh, the Biennale projects are very time specific because uh, there's a three months gap or whatever. So there's a lot that one has to like really try to figure out to get to that place. So yeah, I think that uh, it's a beautiful creative madness that has a, 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 a kernel of something um, centering. <coughs> the, um, I love the way you said that, Ed, about the chaos is happening outside the frame. I yes. think, I think, um, 
I think it's really beautifully said. I think one of the things that I, I think is true, and I do, I do it in design, yeah. um, is the is like pulling everything out of the closet and then curating back mm -hmm, this, this mm -hmm. moment, the frames that Ed talked about, and you know these these distilled images of of your mm -hmm. work of how you tell the story are is made up of multiple stilled images. Um, uh, no, 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 this is, I mean, one of the things that, um, that I love about Absence of Love is how romantic you are <laughs> and can be about ideas. Yeah. Um, do you think that emotionally you're that romantic or do you contrive it? Are you trying to work my emotions with, yeah. with, 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 or are you, are you sentimental? Like where do the, where does the romance really live sometimes you know what I mean does yeah, that make yeah. sense I do think when I think of myself I do think I'm a romantic I love um old cities and um I'm drawn to antiquity I do have um some values I think sometimes that is quite romantic <laughs> in terms of like um an aesthetic a kind of um a way of living I've cultivated that um, one would say is a little bit more on the romantic side, a little bit more on the... Um, what is that? What is that? Because I think that's really essential. If anybody wants to know Billy, and I've spent some time with Billy Ed, what does that look like for you? Like, like, like describe what that, what like the first half an hour of your day is like then, <laughs> in that kind of romantic way. Would you please share that with us? It all depends on what my mood is, but normally for me, I need to wake up and I have to make my bed. That's like for me, like crucial because I use my bed sometimes as a space that um, to do work. And I love to have books and things on my bed. And I, I need to, I live in a, in a brownstone that is a duplex and I need to bring up a tray sometimes with my coffee or whatever, toast with some jams and butter. And I need sometimes to sit on my bed with a candle and some incense and read some books so so i need that like two hours of you know meditation yoga two and hours course, in the morning two hours yeah, okay. it depends on what's happening but i do need to you know wash my face and put some face oil and you know <laughs> put a dash of cologne and and if i'm having a really bad day um i love to wear I wear a lot of jewelry sometimes. <laughs> I love to wear all my jewelry and I would put a white shirt on, you know, button shirt, you know. With, <laughs> so what is, so that, no, I'm just, and then I'm going to, I'm going to hand it back over to Ed. I, what is that? What, what is, that's, that's romance or there's some, there's, you're, you're a character in your own life. Oh, totally. And I think it, it is, a, um, uh, uh, goes back to, um, the practice of uh, self-love and, and self-appreciation. Okay. And um, for me, I know I need this kind of, um, I need this kind of propping, I need this type of, uh, of way of being in order to do the work, uh, the chaotic work as we've been talking about that I need to do. So this two hours is a space in which I could cultivate and have a centering because I could wake up in the morning feeling very melancholy for no yeah. reason and it takes me a while to get over this feeling of melancholy and the melancholy sometimes is not depression it's just a, a, a feeling of some sort of sadness that maybe it's connected to 
childhood. But actually, if I could recall since my early years as a child, there was this feeling of melancholia I can feel. And there's a specific song connected to my melancholia in the morning, which was the songs of doves in our backyard. Mm. And you know, it's funny, had... probably as artists, the three of us all have our own practices yes. of how we do the day. Like I have a two hour practice in the middle of the day where yes. I just walk mm -hmm. and, um, you know, walk five, six miles a day and just sort of a, a, a new practice for me that has sort of changed how I look at things creatively. Right. And so what's your practice, Layden? That's why I'm such a mess, you know. <laughs> well, and I'm serious, guys. I really want to have it. I'm the I'm the person who's always aspiring to get their spiritual practice together, and yeah. uh, along with a lot of different things, it's what it's been a big struggle for me. Um, but if I had to say some, I would say it's probably coffee, walk the dog, and unfortunately, I would have probably looked at my phone before I got out of the bed. Uh -huh. yeah. It's, yeah. it's so it's so interesting. Uh, I, think, I, 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 I don't. Yeah, sorry. Ed, go I, on. I think as, as anybody in life could use that. But I think as yeah. artists, we having a practice where you start your day probably just sort of adds order to a little order to that chaos of, of life. And oh, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I need a, you know, I have my coffee. I have my water with my lemon. I have no, no Ed, Ed, trust me, it's a, it's, my it's an, it, Ed, Ed, it's an entire, no, no, it's an entire novena in the morning of uh, <laughs> the whole thing, Ed, incense, the whole thing, the whole thing is like, yes. you know, the books and reading my journals, I need to, um, this is what keeps me centered. And uh, a lot of my inspiration comes from this space that I've created. And I need a little bit of it at some point in the evening, sometimes before bed, just to wrap it up. Oh, yeah. you, hey, Billy, you talk about melancholy. When I am having a bad day, I will just take my camera and walk. Wonderful. And, and the day may not get much better, but it'll always get at least this much better. And sometimes it'll yeah. turn into magic. You never know. But right. the idea of walking out with a camera and doing some, being, getting back to my creative self mm -hmm. always helps when I get into that melancholy or just like, where, where am I today? Right. Yeah. What, what, do we, what do we think that the melancholy is about? Is it, is, is it just a default state of like, it, that forces us into our, into our better practices so that we could shake them off. I don't know what it, what is it? You know, I think it could just um, be chemical. It could probably be just I think, chemical. I think a lot of people, um, because, you know, it's easy to think that, uh, to go into a narcissism and thinking that, oh, you know, he's an artist, he's like melancholy. Oh, you know, we use that over, that word is overused sometimes to describe certain feelings. But on a daily basis, I think a lot of people struggle and have, feelings of sadness, feelings yes. of melancholia. Um, they may not put that, they may not language it in that way. They go about the life because they have to do a nine to five job. They have families, they have stuff that happens. But I think we as artists has more time on our hand in which to sort of like a langois in melancholia. Mm -hmm. But this is not some, a lot of people don't have access to that kind of, um, even the time to like indulge you know, in that kind of melancholia. So over the years, so you know, I've been, 
when I was younger, I used to have this romantic notion. It's like, oh yeah, I'm in my melancholia, you know, <laughs> Paris, uh, Flanier, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, and, and no, and yeah, but fuck that. Totally fuck that. And it's, it's so funny because I come from a totally different place where I don't get in that melancholy space. It's just what I do. I knew I know what to do. But yeah. I start my day off with a gratitude practice. Like I can't believe that I've been doing this for 40 years. And it's my first, it's it's my first thought of the day. Yeah. Is that oh wow, we're 40 years in one day. We're 40, you know, this is oh, amazing. Brilliant. That's a great practice. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I did not know that that you started the day off with a gratitude. Oh yeah, no, every day. It's just like I'm just laying there and I can't believe that. I'm on my own 50-yard line. You know, I have the best seat That's in the brilliant. house for myself. Yeah, which is a very Buddhist kind of uh, uh, practice in a way because, you know, we only have today. And I do think this is Zen Buddhist uh, prayer, forgotten it right now, where it, um, it gives gratitude to this day that we have. And this is the, the only day that we have that we could have died today. But going back to that um, business around melancholia, I had brought that up one time. I think it was one of my Buddhist teacher. And he, you know, mentioned that, you know, you know, we could be walking anywhere in the street and a sudden sadness washes upon us. But it does not always belong to us. It's kind of comic. It could belong to something collective. It's a wave, like a wave that you got caught. Exactly. In, it's in, an in, energy. Right. It's something karmic. It could be ancestral. But melancholia that we feel does not all is not always personal. So to take take this heavy weight off us of like, oh my God, why am I so sad today? Why am I so depressed or whatever? And when you begin to think of it in terms of it's collective, it's not just my sadness, it's other people's sadness. Yeah. I mean, we live in a relational world. Oh, yeah, listen, about- ever since I was a, even a little kid, I always remember saying I could never be 100% happy Yeah. when people are struggling in the world and people are just suffering. So there's that part of me that says, oh, yeah. you can never be 100% happy even yeah. in any moment because- Yeah, you're talking about men, empathy uh, and compassion. Absolutely, and that's the space in which one develops the, this, the uh, becomes a, a Buddhisattva in that sense to uh, have uh, some compassion for other people's suffering. So maybe, and you know, the practice that was given to me when this feeling come over me is to uh, then turn it around, like may all beings have happiness. May I have happiness. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings dwell in equanimity and absolute bliss or whatever the prayer is, this Buddhisattva prayer. So that actually is a good way to counteract this heaviness that surrounds us all on a daily basis, because I think a lot of people um, feel deep, profound, profound sadness on a daily basis. Oh, yeah, I would agree with you. And I think a lot of, I think, um, I think, there's a lot of shame connected to feeling, to having those feelings because yeah. the minute that you someone does feel, um, uh, feel a feeling, yeah, uh, feeling that it's associated with something bad, right? Because in, the, in the, our, the echo chamber out there through social media and what have you, 
uh, promotes this idea that all of us have to be always happy and successful. <laughs> and, I'm not. Yeah, and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, I don't even like the word. I I think of the word as joy versus happiness. Yes. Yes. You know, like when I go out, like when I'm photographing, there's a certain joy, but there's a certain challenge, and it's not like happy. I'm not like, ooh, I'm happy, I'm, but. It, there's a certain inner joy of going out and photograph, knowing that I may not get what I, I'm looking for or mm-hmm. it's not working out or sometimes it's working out. But the yeah. fact that I'm just doing this and this is what I want to be doing gives me a certain joy. And that, ha- and, you know, I, I really see a difference between joy and happiness. Yeah. Happiness yes. seems a bit artificial, doesn't it? Like it almost feels... What what is what what is the challenge with the word happy Ed? Like what is happy? You know, I think happy is just like that momentary m- moment. You hear a joke, oh. you're happy. You know, or somebody says yes. something funny, you're happy. Or you, mm-hmm. or something just happens where you just somebody does something really great for you, and you're just happy in that. So I see happy as a momentary moment, while joy is isn't always about smiling. Sometimes it could be about melancholy. You know, it could be about interesting just yeah. you know just could be about who you are as a person and mm. and doing what you actually want to be doing in life something me that, yeah yeah say billy i'm sorry i said oh, something oh, that is much more innate yeah yeah sorry ed what were you saying also oh no i'm i was I'm fine. Let's let's move on. <laughs> but this is all saying. part of the, the the that process, isn't it? That creative process we we are talking about. What gives one inspiration on a daily basis? Because you know, a lot of my own practice uh, in terms of what I mine in my work are not always very painful subject, and it's not always joyful subject. It's subject that is connected to trauma, whether that is colonial trauma, uh, family trauma, my own trauma all sort of collapsed into these works. So um, it's not a space necessarily that um, it's uh, always um, joyful per se, but it, it, it is that process of going to the abyss that one finds a kind of catharsis. And that catharsis for me is like this inner joy, not necessarily happiness, but this inner joy you're talking about that comes from that space of having walk through something painful mm-hmm. you and know you're looking wait, what's that? Unfortunately, i have to answer a text just hold on oh, <laughs> okay. um yeah um no, no no i i i completely understand and agree with you um billy about that about the catharsis the mm-hmm. i think this business about um, representing one as being happy. I think that's an entire thesis that we could actually really dig into. Like, mm-hmm. you know, especially with the likes and the um, and the amount of addiction that we find with um, representing ourselves in a positive way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the whole uh, self-help um, you know, th- these uh, new gurus and all these people that are out there in order the, the positive thinking could set us up for a lot of failure sometimes because it's this idea that we all have to be happy, we all have to be successful and what is success at the exactly. end of the day? And uh, so much of, the, you know, uh, what we see out there is, uh, is this kinds of, uh, uh, this narrative around we have to be 
these super successful people in order to get likes, in order for anyone to even accept us within certain space in which we navigate in, and people never really see you as uh, who you are as a whole person. No, it, 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 there is there is a word, part a part of the world that social media feeds is which is transactional and not inter interpersonal. Yeah. You know, I, I call it the death of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is very life. true. And yeah, as and I, and I would say I I would say as a creative an artist whatever I have to be protective of myself mm -hmm. because and really be very mindful around social media. Yeah. yeah, and for me I think that's the space where one never goes to to find creativity because what you find there is uh, or inspiration, what you could find there because we think by looking at all these other people's work and what they're doing that is somehow going to say oh look what this person is making this artwork blah 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 and that's going to somehow really inspire our own creative process but actually for me it's a space where there is a lot of compare and despair oh, and, um, totally. I had seen myself <laughs> doing it over the years and at the end of the day, then appear that these people are having this fabulous creative life. And then I begin to diminish my own process and my own creativity. So if anything, that's the space I don't go through to get any kind of affirmation. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I mean, I the, the one space I don't look at is I'll look at any kind of art, but I don't look at photography a lot because it just like, it goes to compare and despair. It's like, oh, they're way better than I am. And, oh, interesting. You know, so I don't, I don't even go there. I don't look at a lot of photography, you know, except old masters and, you know, people who've influenced me, you know, throughout my life. I'll look at that, but I tend not to look at a lot of photography. So is that, Ed, is that, is that a, is that a competitive or a competition issue? No, it might be a little competitive. I mean, I have a competitive side to me, but and so there's probably that in there, but I think most of it is that, oh my God, this looking at this person's great work just fucking me up. <laughs> you know <what> it is? <laughs> right, right, right. In other words, it's getting in your mind. Yeah. Yes. Getting, and yeah. what could I do? To, what do I need to do to change where I'm fine yeah. just the way I am, you know? Right. Oh my right, God. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This well, is so true. It is. I mean, I think on that note, what do I need to change? Um, I think um, it's a really good place to wind down the conversation and 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 really recognize that we're exactly where we're supposed to be, rather than yes. um, you know any other place that we need to be. Ed. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I actually have another question for oh, uh, probably all of us, and specifically for Billy. What as being an artist, what are your what are your the biggest challenges you have going forward, or just now forget forward. Right. For me, my biggest challenge is always uh, uh, a space that is conducive to my own creative process, um, making space, making um, by space, I mean home. And also, um, of course, finance is always a challenge for me because I create films and work that are super expensive and um, getting the, the right kind of support around the work to continue having a, a creative practice, but also, you know, a space in which to have and, and to mind creative ideas, uh, uh, you know, a laboratory in which I can experiment and explore. Because for me, my home is, is an extension of my creative practice as well, because a lot of the work that I do is um, first um, happens in that space. So for me, space is like really, really important. 
um, I'm also a tyrant and I think I'm, you know, part of my nature is to be very grounded in home and aesthetics and a certain kind of um, beauty around me. So that for me is always a challenge in how to create that because um, on some levels, my life is sort of uh, a nomadic in terms of traveling, developing projects. Um, so my challenge in life has always been a space in which I can have a meditation practice. I can have my creative life and um, having the right amount of support around me financially in which to have that as well. So um, I think that's a good space. And I'm affirming that um, I am just where I needed to be right now. And um, my visions in terms of larger visions could always get ahead of me. Um, but just for today, I have the space that I need to be right now in which to create. Yeah, so you're in a great space in that you're you're not living, you're looking for support. You're not in an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And and that's, you know, so many, or I mean, I get caught up in the echo chamber all the time, but yeah. How about you, Layden? What do you mean the echo chamber? I'm like, hearing my own voice and not, you know, not getting feedback and not, you know, getting support. And... Oh, are you talking about from other people to look at your your own per, your own work? Like not even look that... at your own work, but just look at your creative process and have a oh, conversation no, about what that. I mean, I think that's what this podcast is about: is like looking at different creative processes from different artists, and we're hearing one really clearly from Billy which is, well, I have this amazing creative process, but I need a really stable home. Like, mm. and, and I'm not saying the home's not creative. I mean, I'm looking at it and it's yeah. very creative, but it's like, Billy, do you see his home as a creative space or, or not a, or a place just to really just meditate and, or maybe those are the same thing? Well, all of the above, you know, for me, um, I, uh, home is a space in which I entertain friends but also the most important thing is where I uh, a place I come to and feel enriched uh, in my own uh, process my own life and I think the challenge specifically right now for a lot of artists living in big cities like New York is the search for a home and a home could be the space in which they create yeah. from or whether that is uh, uh, their home could be their studio but because of the issues that we have around real estate and finances right now uh, it's a real challenge I think for a lot of artists because a lot of artists have you know have to live with many roommates and uh, situations that are not necessarily conducive to the creative process because I do think a part of being an artist is um, the need for solitude in which mm. to to create work and, and a space that is conducive to make uh, a certain kind of creative work and support for that. So I don't think we have probably enough support for the arts here when, as I say, in Europe, I'm not to say that I'm thinking that Europe is, um, you know, um, you know, a bed of roses in that sense, but there's definitely a lot more support there for the arts, specifically individually, you know, um, so they can create the, the, and, and make work. I think that is something that we don't have a lot of respect for all the time here in big cities. That is, um, everything is mortgaged. Everything is, you know, based on capitalism. Yeah, totally. Uh, and and in the eighties in New York, that was completely different. Exactly. And it was like everybody wanted to be an artist, and now everybody wants yeah. to be a hedge fund manager. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it really is. It makes me very sad. 
It makes yeah. me happy. Yeah, I mean, it's very sad. Well, I think, but I think artistic currency will come back. Yeah. You know? I think artistic currency hasn't been lost. I just think it's it's more commodified versus, oh, what is that person possibly poetically saying? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to make a big generalization about it because yeah. I think multiple things are happening in, 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 in at the exact same time. Right. Well, right. I'm going to ask the, the question that um, some of you guys would ask, you know, which was, you know, being African-American artists. You know, in black this men, time, black men, black men, black, black, <laughs> okay. black well, yeah. European African artists. I wanted to make it as, un as uncomfortable as possible. Black, queer, and from the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. I'm now we can red. start. Now look, right at, now, look at look at Ed is Ed is turning into a peach right in front of us. Yeah. Okay, I am like, so what is the question now, Ed? I have no question. I just <laughs> um, <laughs> I will, I will say that one of the things that really impressed me about Mind the Gap was, you know, since we were rounding back around, you know, what does it mean? I think, of course, we know part of the story. Of, I, I think I know part of the general answer to that question, but for Billy, specifically for you, when you were making your film, um, and, and, and one of the, I think I was trying to, trying to tease it out when I asked, why did you leave Grenada? Mm -hmm. is you know is being i don't think it's an issue about being black in grenada i think most that's okay um what what other circumstances could have what could have forced your hand like was a part of the contributing factor of like and what and what and have and has that changed in in terms of your own personal history and and what you might Absolutely, see in the future? yeah yeah I, i'm being gay uh, which is what you know we said at the time um being gay was a major factor um i was very much aware at a very early age that i have different tendencies and desires uh homoerotic desires that was not um uh, that was not part of the 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 text and the um the way of being for a lot of the people around me I did not have a name for it, but I knew that instinctively that I was different. And um, I knew there was not a space for me in which to um, express uh, queer desires and uh, any sort of desires that was expressed in that space was considered uh, shameful or um, there was a lot of uh, homonegativity attached to being gay in the Caribbean. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to pause right there for a second because I wonder, for me, I know being black now, just mm -hmm. taking the same frame of mind about all of that, that, that kind of what seems like a compression of anxiety around being gay. Yeah. Do you feel sometimes in spaces today, whether it be in Grenada, UK, mm -hmm. Venice, here, whatever, that being Black actually triggers some of those same feelings of shame. Does that make sense? I think one is um, constantly carrying around various kinds of feelings. Um, for someone who is Black and queer, there is multiple feelings at the same time right. that one is processing. It's, it's a lot of emotions around like black, but also being queer. And, um, but I try nowadays not to dwell too much. And uh, but I guess my upset, my question, I guess, and you know, actually my follow-up is whose eyes are looking when you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Whose eyes are looking when 
when you're starting to have those feelings? Well, specifically in the Caribbean, when I was there, um, to go back to that question, um, it was definitely the neighbors and the people. Um, uh, there's a lot of, um, it's a culture where a lot of um, gossip, a lot of um, looking at other people's mind and other people's business, like they say, <laughs> is very much part of the culture because it's small places with not a lot to do and gossip and uh, mining other people's business becomes sort of a recreation and a yes. pleasure if you will yeah. and so therefore you become a target for for as a, as a black and queer body for other people's um, conversation and other people's pleasure right 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 you know so and, uh, and so, so, so originally it was the is whatever mixture of people that make up Greta yeah. Grenada, and and today it's and it could be anything that triggers. Yeah, I mean uh, anything that is other. I think that's just people, society's um, um, ammo in general. Anything that is other becomes a target for um, right somebody else's pleasure. Because the gossip, when you think of the gossip, gossip is really juicy and really connected to a lot of pleasure and like, oh yeah, look at that person and like, why is his why is his hair like that? Or, you know, look at that man or look at that woman. She's so fat, you know. And it's just like it makes one feel better than. Yeah, indulging in in other people's at, exactly. At other people's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastical yeah. on so many levels. Oh no, and it's a, a gossip and all that stuff is delicious poison. It's delicious. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Oh, it is. It's terrible. It's terrible. And uh, trying to be superior to others by taking absolutely. By, yeah. And gay people has always been a target for society's gossip. Mm. Uh, gay I've never, it's interesting you're talking about gossip versus politics but yeah exactly and politics too because then you know we have always been the target of politics as well you know any politicians there's a, a, never been a time when the gay issue has not been the center focus of any uh, uh, right wing uh, Christian whatever politician right 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 you know, it's, so, um, it's, we're getting it's, a plethora of that right now. So, exactly. yeah, yeah. So, um, but that being said, um, I've had my relationship has shifted to Grenada and I've been able to return there to make films and uh, the 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 um, people's narrative around gayness in Grenada has shifted as well with a younger generation of course and I think there is much more positive uh, uh, feelings towards uh, queer people versus in the 1970s and 80s when I lived there and that is very much the entire world and on many levels like within pockets of community um, it's definitely shifted and Grenada is definitely has had a big shift over the years, uh, um, specifically around the younger generation, the Gen X and all of that is really shifting the conversation uh, around uh, being queer. So it had allowed me the space in which to navigate and to go back there to make the kind of work that I've been making there, working with local actors, working with local people on the island, from the bus driver to the cook, to the what have you, all the people that goes into making a film. 
and I've never had any kind of homo negativity towards me or my crew. And I work a lot with some of the queer people on the island as well. So I would say that um, my, relation, my relationship has shifted um, by the very uh, notion of going back into my own father's archive and going back into the spaces that uh, was fearful for me. I was able to change my own narrative over mm. the year around the Caribbean. What I'm actually hearing from you is that Grenada is a big influence on your art, and absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know more than any of the other parts. I mean, I'm hearing all the other parts, but I'm hearing that Grenada is someplace you want to keep exploring and going back to your roots. Absolutely, I think the the the, the formation of Grenada, um, what it represents, uh, is very much part of my own process and creativity and. Uh, when I think of Grenada, uh, it, I think of all the other colonial spaces like um, that was part of Grenada in terms of France, in terms of Africa, in terms of um, you know, um, you know, um, UK. all the influence of colonialism is in that space for me. Okay, so Billy, I want we want Layton. I want to thank you, Layton. Why don't you do the thank you? He's a good friend of yours. Well, I want to, well, yeah, I want, um, I get, I thanked him in the beginning when I thank you again as we wrap thank up. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. To no, be it was great. Thank you also really. I know you've been very busy with the Venice Biennale. I know this is your second time and congratulations on, on representing Grenada in the, in the Venice Biennale for 2022. Um, and, um, um, I really appreciate, I know time is really valuable for we artists and I yeah. thank you for taking some of your Sunday for to share with us. All thank right. you, much and appreciated. Billy, yeah, thank you. I mean, it was really great to just watch your films the last few days and um, just, thank you. just looking at your aesthetic was amazing. And, and, and it really, I have always thought about why don't filmmakers make visually beautiful films also? You know, they're commercially beautiful, you know, from a commercial, but this was real, this was like real art and almost oh, architectural photography at times. Well, and dioramic. Yeah, it dioramic. Um, yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna get us out. Sound editing and theme music by Will Ainsley. Brian Rezevko was basically our mentor who really taught us all the technicals, showed us how to get this online. We would not be here without Brian. So thank you, Brian. The logo is by Layden Lewis and Sharon McLaughlin of Mermaid New York City. And um, if you're creative, we would love to hear from you. We would love to, to email us your story. And if we like it, we would love to have you on. Uh, we are looking for creatives to tell their story, what their challenges are, what they love about working in the creative field, what is working for them. Um, so until next time, I hope you guys listen. This podcast is for you. Thanks.